Turn with me in your Bible to Proverbs chapter 18. We're talking about, we got this new little series we're doing called Reality Checks. And the whole purpose of this series is to keep us from being spooky. I want us to be spirit-filled, but I don't want us to be weird. Years ago, Dr. Barclay was here. He was preaching that the Holy Spirit doesn't make you weird. But sometimes charismatics get there. So I've also said for a while now that God wants us to be supernatural, but if your natural is broken, then your supernatural is going to be super weird and broken. So we have to really perfect the natural before we can be supernatural. Otherwise, I don't know what's the point of having a nice engine if you don't have wheels. Amen. So we want to work on our natural. Uh, the Spirit-filled life and Pentecost and with a faith message was never meant to be put upon the foundation and let the foundation collapse and go nowhere. It was supposed to be added to. But after 40, 50, 60 years of some good Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement and the Word of Faith teaching revival, we, we neglected the foundations of like normalcy. We neglected the foundation of being a good mother or a good father. We neglected the foundation of a work ethic. We neglected the foundation of a budget, and we just went mystical. And that has caused us to be weird. So I'm having to come back a little bit and teach on just reality. And it isn't just for maybe charismatics. It's also for this next generation of kids who haven't been taught reality. And we're watching that every generation is, is getting more and more, it's coming up more and more ill-equipped, more and more ill-prepared, more and more immature. And we don't mean that as an insult, just as an observation. And so we're kind of going through this and doing reality checks. Church services, we want to be supernatural, but if you think you should be supernatural every moment of every day, you're going to get weird. And I want to be able to uh, demonstrate the power of God. But if you think that this is how I live at home, you'll go home and be weird. And this is not how I live at home. My, my daughter Lydia asked me the other day, she said, Daddy, does God answer your prayers all the, in, all the time? I said, most of the time he does. She said, does he answer instantly? I said, never. Never does God answer me instantly. I said, well, in services he does. Because I'll say, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do I need to do here? And I'll instantly know. But with instant, I mean within a, a second or two or three. But that's because it's the corporate anointing. It's because it's a church service. We have a limited time. We have to accomplish the will of God. But apart from that, if I'm out in public or if I'm in my private life, if I'm praying and seeking God, he never answers me instantly. Even when there's the occasional supernatural burden on me to go steal away and pray, and I know there's something I've got to process or pray out, it never comes instantly. Sometimes it'll take 15, 20, 30 minutes of praying in the Spirit before I get it. So I, I say that so that you don't think that the way we operate in a prayer line or in a Holy Ghost service, I don't want you to dare think that's how I live at home because it is not at all how I live at home. The supernatural very rarely happens like that to me outside of church. Uh, there are a few in between. And, but I've lived for God long enough. I've been spirit-filled long enough that I can tell stories all day long, and you think that they just happen every day. And they don't happen every day. They happen sometimes months or years apart. And I just use the ones that seem to fit whatever we're teaching on. But when I go home, 
I have to do laundry or fold clothes or put them away. I vacuum. I play with my kids. I try to figure out how to pick up branches in the backyard that I don't want to pick up. I think this needs to be repaired. That needs to be repaired. I wonder how my neighbor's doing. Is he needing help today? What are my kids doing? Do we need to watch another movie together? Are we watching a cartoon? What are my kids watching now? When's the last time we had a Bible study? I need to start a new Bible study. Oh, look, uh, my wife's oil needs changing again. I live like you do. And very rarely do I get a, a vision, a dream, uh, a word from the Lord. It's just normalcy. Normalcy, normalcy. Because if you're going to be safely supernatural, you've got to have a normal, natural. And I have made the observation many times, our denominational brothers and sisters often have a much greater success rate in the long run than charismatics. Because charismatics are wanting to take shortcuts, get a bump in the spirit, and land somewhere wonderful, whereas the denominational folks just slow and steady win the race. They just raise their kids to fear God. They raise their kids to work hard. They raise their kids to be respectful. They raise their kids to go to church. They raise their kids to have a budget. And we charismatics, I don't know what we do. None of that. Now, maybe, hopefully not in this church anymore. But uh, my friend, Reverend Ken um, and Trudy Blunt, Pastor Ken now, he said, have you ever noticed charismatics are the worst parents? And I said, yeah. He said, you tell me one of our generals in the faith who has a son successfully taking over their ministry. And I said, you're right. He said, it's been a, a horrible thing for us in the word of faith circles. And he's a children's ministry expert. So we're teaching this series on reality checks and just foundational Christianity. Maybe to help some of us older crazy Maddox's maybe to help some of this younger generation who didn't have much parenting or whose parents were busy caught up in charismatica so they weren't parented. Amen. So last week we talked about relationships and we showed you from the word how there's so many bumpers and guardrails about how to have a relationship with somebody. And so it felt natural or felt good to continue. This week, we're going to talk about just friendships. You wouldn't believe charismatics are horrible at friendships. And this social media generation is also horrible at friendships. And since we're both charismatic and part of the social media generation, I thought we'll talk about something as mystical and earth-shattering and revelatory as how to have friends. <laughs> Amen. Because even once you're married, you should have friends outside of your marriage. You should be able to open your home and even as a husband or a wife, open your heart to a, a girlfriend if you're a lady or a guy friend if you're a man. When your marriage becomes so super exclusive, that's usually an extension of insecurity and dysfunction. And a lot of folks do get married because they're dysfunctional and codependent, and they can succeed in a career and have kids, but they can be 40 years old, 60 years old, and be so exclusive that they don't open their life to anybody else, and they're still dysfunctional, and they're codependent, and that's something that was rooted in their childhood. So the Bible commands us to be friendly. So there are two ditches to the friendship doctrine, as there are two ditches to every doctrine. One ditch is you have so many friends, it ruins you, like a Kardashian. Huh. The other extreme is you don't share your life with anybody and you withdraw and you become a hermit. 
But somewhere down the middle is a balance where you're not so friendly that it ruins you because you have a thousand friends that require needy maintenance, or you're reclusive and don't open up your life. Both of them are signs of an unbalanced soul. So Proverbs 18, the same chapter shows both ditches. Chapter 18, 1 uh, says, Through desire a man will separate himself. Or the NIV says, One who separates himself seeks his own desire. So that's the, the person, can be ladies, though ladies are typically more social. They withdraw because they seek themselves. Typically, it says something like this. Well, I was hurt once before. So what they're saying is, I would rather disobey God's word than seek healing. So they withdraw because of fear, because of insecurity. So they close themselves off. You can be in a room of people and be closed off. You can be a faithful, long-time church member and be closed off. But the Bible says, through desire, a man having separated himself will withdraw. They will separate themselves. They'll seek their own desire, and they will basically fight against all wisdom. They'll fight against all that is not knowledgeable. The New Testament tells us that we're called to seek the betterment of others, not ourselves. So typically, those that withdraw, that are hermits, that are reclusive, even if they come into the public arena, they are typically very, very selfish. It does not matter, big picture, what has happened to us or happened against us. We're still called to seek the betterment of other people. People can be traumatized and victimized in the most horrific of ways. And I don't mean to disparage that or put that down, but even if you've been betrayed, divorced, assaulted, the Bible still commands you in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it commands us to seek the betterment of others, and you can't do that withdrawn. You can't fulfill the law of Christ, which is love your neighbor as a hermit. Hermits are unbiblical. Even the prophet who would go out to the desert place in fulfillment of divine Old Testament prophecy still came back to the city and ministered to the people. So we're talking about two ditches. There's the one that withdraws, and if that's you, you've got to figure out why. Typically, it's a fear, it's a pain. Both of those can be healed in Christ, but you have to seek God for that healing. You don't get to use your pain or your fear to disobey the Bible. We've got plenty of teaching on how to get the victory over it, but we are called to be friendly. We're called to seek the betterment of others. The other ditch is verse 23. Is that verse 23? Proverbs 18, 24. A man that has friends must show himself friendly, or the modern translation says, a friend of too many friends comes to ruin. So the King James says, a friend, uh, a man with that hath friends must show himself friendly. What that's saying is when you have a lot of friends, you got to be friendly constantly, and that's exhausting. But the modern translations bring it out better because the Hebrew does say ruin or fall apart, that when you have too many friends, it'll destroy you. Why? Because that's a lot of maintenance, and you've spread yourself thin trying to please everybody. And we can't please everybody. We should aim to please people, but we're not men-pleasers. There's the balance there. 
We ought to seek to please our boss. We ought to seek to please the professor. We ought to seek to please mom and dad. We ought to seek to be a good friend to our friends. But you spread yourself too thin, you'll run yourself ragged trying to make everybody happy. And, and, and I'm not trying to be misogynistic, but typically ladies get caught up in that. They're trying to please mama and grandmama and then the mother-in-law and then their uncle and then their brother-in-law. And this is, makes Christmas hell on earth. So you just try to please everybody that says they love Jesus and is kin to you, and you'll go crazy. So two ditches here, the recluse who seeks themselves and that person that tries to please everybody and be friends with everybody. It's really one of the perversions of social media. You find affirmation in something the Bible condemns, which is having a whole bunch of friends. We're friends on Facebook, which means you've never met. We're Facebook friends because we know that's not real friendship. Do you know brother so-and-so? Yeah, yeah, we're Facebook friends. What does that mean exactly? Shallow existence is what that means. <laughs> I was talking with one of our educators, higher level educators, and they said, Pastor, this generation, they don't even know how to make eye contact. You work in the college. Is that right, Miss Eva? This... You're dealing with college students who are getting college education. They can't even make eye contact. But we're dealing with a generation that spent the last 12 years on social media. They have no idea what a friend really is. Is that someone you poke? Thumbs up? Follow? Chat? Is that someone at the other end of a headphone? Is that someone with an emoji? Is that someone with an avatar? You wouldn't recognize them in public because they're not a purple dragon. <laughs> so why are we teaching on reality checks? Because this generation doesn't have any idea what reality is. Amen. So we have two ditches. The recluse, even in the local church, I call them peripheral saints. They won't open their heart or their life to anybody because they've been hurt or they're just shy. Shy is not an acceptable disposition. Shy is not an acceptable disposition. It may have been kind of your default slant growing up. Mom and dad failed you because they didn't train it out of you. But if you're going to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, let me remind you of what it says. You shy person, go into all the world and be a wallflower and follow the horrible advice of St. Francis Assisi. Preach the gospel, and if you have to, use words. I'm sorry, St. Francis. Go hug a dove or something. <laughs> Pet a dog. But the gospel must be preached. And how shall they hear except the gospel be preached to them? It involves words. Go pet a cat. Francis, because you don't even have a clue what you're talking about. That's one of the quotes I hate with all of my heart, that all the weird mystical Christians want to quote, put on a bumper sticker, a tattoo on the back of their neck. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, and if you have to, use words. Faith comes by. So that means words. He may have had some other good quotes, but they sure aren't published like that stupid one is. Amen. So you got the one who's reclusive, shy person. You got to overcome that because we got to go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples. That means you sit down with people, 
one-on-one, eye contact, no avatars. I mean, when you live behind an avatar, you're weird. I know it's acceptable online, but it's weird in reality. This is a series of sermons called Reality Checks. Then you have the other person who's just a man pleaser and they want so many friends, so many friends, so many friends, because really they are so immature and insecure too. They're lost in the abundance of friends because when you have all these friends, you don't really have any. Because if you have 100 friends, you don't have to really open your heart to anybody. So somewhere down the middle, there's this nice balance of you have a couple close friends. You're friendly and helpful to as many people as you can, but you have some real worthy real quality, real traction-filled relationships that you can be honest and forthright. And we're not teaching this anymore. And the next generation will be worse, and the next generation will be worse, and the next generation will be worse, to where folks will just want to jack into the metaverse and just walk around as some weird avatar under King Zuckerberg, using Zuck bucks to buy clothing. Verse 24 says... A man with lots of friends will come to ruin, but there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Pastor Vaughn used to preach that concerning the Holy Spirit, and I like that, but this is in contrast to the person that has too many friends. You can have too many friends and really come to ruin, or you can have one friend that's really closer than a brother. And we ought to all have somebody like that in our life. When you're married, it should be your spouse, but there's nothing wrong with having a lady friend when you're a woman who's also like a dear, dear sister in Christ. And there's nothing wrong with having a guy friend when you're a man who you can be honest with. But one of the things we deal with as Americans, as 21st century human beings, is we deal with pride and insecurity. And that's why we love social media, because we can just filter up our life. Take a thousand pictures of our family, smile, filter it, And nobody saw how much mama yelled and screamed, how much dad was exhausted, how much the kids got beat before that perfect picture of me and the kiddos (laughs) to all your fake Facebook friends trying to mask how dysfunctional your whole family really is. And that kind of person is not approachable from a sister in Christ or a brother in the Lord to say, look, let me help you with your marriage. No, no, they just want want that photogenic Cosmo family picture that, that there's not an ounce of reality to it. But as long as I get 100 likes and five affirmative comments on Instagram or social media, then I feel like a million bucks. There's no friendship there. There's no reality there. There's no genuineness there. That's as fake as everybody claims they hate fake. Yet they're guilty of their own fakeness. So let me give you the simplest key uh, to having successful friends or being a successful friend and having successful friendships. And this is a Christian mandate, the premier Christian mandate. And if you're not doing this, you're not going to have friends. But the calling of every Christian after being with Jesus is to be a servant. So the key to good friendships is to be a servant. And you can't serve absolutely everybody, but anybody you come into contact with, you can be a servant to. Good friendships are built on a servant's heart. Friendship is a give and take. But if one person only take, 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 takes and never give, 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 gives, it's not a good friendship. It's a parasite. We call those friends needy and clingy, and they end up usually running alone. They become hermits, but not by choice. They become hermits because they're needy. 
if we were all servants like the Lord Jesus commands us to be, everybody would have their needs supplied and nobody would be needy. But the calling to be a servant is an upward calling of total selflessness. And we have been taught by our culture and the, the kings of technocracy that it's all about me, 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 me. It's all about me, so let me figure out what you like so I can take a picture of it and post it so then you'll like me back so I can feel affirmed. So it's the weirdest, most perverse thing I think I've ever observed in my lifetime. We are psychologically discipling people to be man-pleasers to people they don't even know and not even care about the people that are closest to them in life. And this is called social media. And all the psychology and all the studies prove it destroys teenagers' brains. There's a big lawsuit being filed right now by a man whose son committed suicide. He's suing all the social media sites saying, my son's suicide is your fault. You addicted him. You knew what you were doing. You drove him to depression. You knew what you were doing. And right before he killed himself, he was still compelled to post on your uh, site. And he's suing them. And I hope he wins. I hope he breaks them. But then again, Dad, where were you? The simplest key to kingdom success is live as a servant. Look at 1 Corinthians 10. And let's throw this up in the New Living Translation, Holly. We're talking about just being a friend, real friends. Do you know real friends don't get jealous? That's a dysfunction. Real friends rejoice with each other. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 24. It reads, Don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. Don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. That is servitude in a nutshell. That's the key to any good friendship. That's the key to any marriage. Our missionaries to Uganda, one of the most powerful things they ever came back and shared with us, the secret to keeping a healthy marriage on the mission field where things are very inconvenient and not what you're used to back home, is they said they try to outserve each other. It's a good rule for any marriage. It's a good rule to teach your children. It's a good rule to teach your teenagers. It's a good rule to practice when nobody else around you practices it. Even when everybody on the job is cutthroat, you outserve them. You cover for them as long as it's not getting them out of trouble, you know. You, you do their work if they need to. You fill in the gap, and your boss will find out and promote you. You don't do it to be seen, though. Colossians 2 says we don't do it with eye service to be seen. We do it as unto the Lord because we serve the Lord Christ. But the root foundation to any good friendship is don't seek your own good. That's what the hermit does by withdrawing. They're seeking preservation and a pain-free existence. There's no such thing as a pain-free existence. If you love somebody, they're going to hurt you because you just hurt them three days ago. It's just kind of how it works. <laughs> if you raise children, they're going to say stuff that hurts you. If you're married, you're going to say something that hurts your spouse, and then you're going to say, I'm sorry. And then they're going to say, I forgive you. And then you're going to grow up and move on. Amen. Amen. Servitude is don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. This will also limit your friends because you can't be consumed or concerned with the, the good of 150 people unless you're called a pastor. You're not going to be able to say, I have 50 friends. That's not quite possible. 
that, that assignment right there will begin to whittle down how many friends you really do have. Good friends, genuine friends. So avoid the person that is friends with everybody because something's not right there. I've told you this. Usually the biggest personality in town is the most insecure. Yes, sir. They have learned to be a big personality to diffuse anybody else, and that's an act of insecurity. Just as much as the recluse and the hermit is an insecure personality. Most of your famous comedians were very insecure, and they learned to mask it with comedy. I can be around people and I can tell when they start throwing jokes or trying to make funny noises, trying to ping for affirmation. It's just as insecure as social media. When, when you're confident, you can sit there and just have a staring contest and you don't care what people think. I mean, I care, but I don't care. What are you thinking about? I don't know. I actually just left this conversation. I'm thinking about what I got to do when I go home because I'm an adult and I have responsibilities and they don't revolve around what you think. Dr. Sumrall said the Lord told him one time, you'll never find happiness in another person's head. So quit trying. But if you'll try to serve them, you might find happiness serving Jesus. Live as a servant. Let no man seek his own. That's what the King James says. But let us be concerned about the good of another. Uh, Galatians 6.2, let's turn there. Part of having friendships, and that includes a marriage. Galatians 6 2 says, Bear ye one another's burdens. Well, you can't do that on social media. There's no burden. Your thumb gets tired sometimes. <laughs> Your phone battery drains because you're just, you got Facebook open or Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok or whatever time waste they come up with next. It runs in the background and just drains you and your battery. But this verse says, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So if I'm not interacting with a human being, I'm breaking the law of God. Because the law of Christ, the law it's referring to is love your neighbor as yourself. So if you love somebody, your neighbor, your spouse, your kids, your parents, your brother, your sister, your friend in the church, your friend in Christ, you're going to always be looking for what burden they have so you can bear it. And you don't even have to stick your nose in their business. If you can see them falter, you go to prayer first. That's a good way to bear a burden. Then you might encourage them with words. Hey, how's it going? Are you all right? I want you to know I was praying for you. Actually, maybe use that smart device for something useful like texting them. Say, hey, love you, praying for you. If you're going to have a smart device, be smart with it. Build the kingdom with it. Don't destroy your soul with it. So part of being a friend is we are bearing each other's burdens. We kind of understand this instinctively because when people suck the life out of us, when people are needy and clingy, they're not relieving burdens. The friendship with them is actually the burden. And this is not a healthy person to be around. We've all been in those kind of friendships and we want to help them and, and we want to bless them. But my goodness, you're drowning and you're hanging on to me. And sometimes you have to distance yourself from them. Please understand you can't save everybody. Please understand you can't save everybody. Please understand you can't save everybody. I remember 24 years ago or something, I was on an Army Corps of Engineers dam in Arkansas overseeing a drill rig. And uh, God was dealing with me to go witness to this 
couple, this family playing down at the lake is Army Corps of Engineers is a government dam and had a lake. And so I was hanging out with these drillers. One driller had just gotten out of the Army. He was an EOD expert, so that's demolition. Explosive ordinance is demolition. So he's a pretty cool guy to hang out with. And I, I didn't obey God to go witness to these people because I was just too afraid. And it cast me into this depression, and the family got up and left, so I couldn't obey. And this EOD guy, this Army guy, he recognized my countenance just fell. And he said, what's wrong with you? So I just told him, God told me to go witness that family, and I didn't. And I feel really ashamed, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I feel horrible because I think they're going to go to hell now. That's what I told the guy. And this EOD guy, I think he was a backslidden Baptist, he said, man, you just need to repent. You can't save everybody. That's God's job. This is a brilliant word of advice from a backslidden Baptist working on a drill rig. He could tell it put me in a depression, that my disobedience put me in a depression. He said, just repent. You can't save everybody. That's God's job. I wish we would listen to that sometimes because sometimes we're trying to please everybody and they're not pleasable. You know why they're not pleasable? Because they're miserable. You can't please miserable people. It's a black hole. Keep shining the light in there. It doesn't do anything. So you got to mark those people who are impossible to please and just don't even aim any effort at them. Amen. I don't even think Jesus could please them. So in your friendships, ask yourself, am I helping my friend to bear their burden or am I always the burden? There's an appropriate time when you fall and you stumble and they're there to pick you up. But if you're the one that's always needing the attention, you need to get with the Lord Jesus and grow up. We're all for growing up. We totally expect people to stumble. That's why we're there. I'm a friend for you. If you fall, let me know so I can encourage you. I've even gotten on to some of my preacher friends because their wife fought cancer. They didn't even bother to tell us. Or they went through hell on earth with their church, never even called. I said, man, call so we can pray for you. Ah, man, I don't know. Just, it was just tough. Call so I can help. You're not supposed to be Superman. We expect people to need help. That's why we exist for one another. But now on the other hand, if you're the one that's always needing encouragement and you always need a positive word and you always need a breath of fresh air blown into you and you always, always, you're the needy one, you've got to get that fixed because you'll eventually exhaust all your friendships in your life. You can't always be the burden. At some point, you have to help bear the burden. And the best friendships are the ones where you stumble, they pick you up. When they stumble, you pick them up. When you're discouraged, they breathe life into you. When they're discouraged, you breathe life into them. And you, you, your countenance smiles when you see each other's name on the phone or you get that text. But we also know we get that phone call or that text and we go, ugh. Right? You, you know it? You young generation, you're blessed because I lived in the generation the phone just rang. So you picked it up because it was somebody you knew because there wasn't spam back then. And you go, hello, or McMichael residence. And then it was somebody you did not want to talk to. An aunt, a grandmother, a mother, somebody who you said, oh, let me get dad. Or, hey, let me get my brother. Ryan. Granny wants to talk to you. And he'd be like, oh. Now you have caller ID and you can just ignore. But we all have that person in our life. We look forward to the text. We look forward to the phone call because we know they're going to pick us up. And we have to make sure we're that to people as well. All right. So 
Don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. And we're supposed to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ that says, love your neighbor. Nobody loves being dragged down. So don't always be that person. Also, as a servant, we must serve without partiality. This is one of the things that does bug me. Sometimes we, get the, we catch the heart of a servant, and we like to serve, but we serve our favorite people the best. We serve our favorites the best. And if we don't like you, if we serve you at all, it's going to be mediocre with half a heart. But that's no servant at all. That's partialism. The book of James condemns that. So what we have to do is we make sure we serve everybody as unto the Lord. We're nice to the customer. We're nice to the client. We're nice to one another in the house of God. We need to make sure that we're just as excited to serve Pastor Caleb as we are Pastor Chris. We're just excited to see Mr. Steve as, serve Mr. Steve as we are to serve Mr. Frank or Miss Kylie as we are uh, Miss Vicki. We serve them all. We don't let our partialism come out. We're just servants because we serve the Lord Christ. That's what Colossians chapter 2 tells us. We serve the Lord Christ, or chapter 3. We serve as unto the Lord. We don't serve with partialism. There's no point in it. That's biased. So if we can learn to be a servant, we can learn to see the value and the worth in everybody. We'll help everybody as much as we can. And this is going to help build some friendships. Did you know you also have to talk to people face to face to have friends? Amen. Remember, we have two ditches. The recluse that withdraws because they've been hurt and the person that is so insecure they try to please everybody and surround themselves with a thousand friends. Reality says neither one of those is acceptable. Somewhere down the middle. You're a servant to everybody and you kind of have your concentric rings of friendships. We have acquaintances. I have friends. I have close friends. I have those that I would run into a burning house for. Then you have other folks. I'll pray for your burning house. Then you have others, I'm sorry to hear about your burning house. And then you have folks, I may have started the burning house. (laughs) That's bad doctrine. (laughs) 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we looked at last week, and it showed us who we must avoid deep commitments to. I know this is basic, but we're dealing with a generation of social media influencers, which means they're horribly insecure. They're not going to like what they look like when they hit 35, and they'll have even less friends then than they do now. But this is what it takes to have meaningful, lasting relationships. Second Corinthians chapter 6, we're just going to quote it real quick. It says that we don't yoke ourselves together with unbelievers. So if they don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't get in any kind of deep commitment with them. You definitely don't ever get into business with pagans. It also excluded the unrighteous. So that would be believers who are dirty. You don't have deep relationships with dirty Christians, unrighteous living people. The Bible tells me as a pastor that when Christians become unruly or super dirty and they won't repent, I have every right to excommunicate them. The Bible even tells me to stand them up publicly and do it. We haven't seen that much in the church today because we're trying to win friends and influence people. I have a pastor friend, very, just a a sweet, pure pastor. He's just a pastor. He's not a teacher. He's not a missionary. He's not a prophet. He's not an evangelist. He's just a 
pastor. And he stood up a lady and excommunicated her in front of everybody. He runs about 1,000 people. Did it on a Sunday morning. He said, guests, we're so glad to have you with us. We hope to see you again. You're free to dismiss. We have to deal with some in-house church business. And we just would appreciate it if you just file out so we can deal with this. It's a private matter. So they left. He said, all right, church family. He, just for example, Brother Josh, come up here. So Josh comes up here. He said, everybody knows Brother Josh here. This is Brother Josh. He's been on our worship team for years and years and years. Wonderful man, married, wonderful kids. We love him. Sister Susie, stand up over there. Sister Susie has been stalking Brother Josh for six months. We've gone to her in private. We've gone to her as the elders. We've gone to her as the pastor. We've rebuked her. We've confronted her. He, Brother Josh, has gone to Sister Susie. She refuses to stop stalking this married man. We told her if she didn't stop this, we were going to excommunicate her. Susie, this is your excommunication. Get out of here and never come back. Go. Church, don't fellowship with her. She's out of sorts with church leadership. She's in open sin. She's stalking a married man. She's a pervert. Go. Don't come back. You're not welcome. That happened about 10 years ago. Not 1890. Recently. And that was biblical. And I was shocked that the man who was that sweet and encouraging did it. He kind of put some fire in me. I thought, well, I hope I have a sister Susie somewhere in my church. I want to practice. I got a Susan Keith. Will that work? <laughs> so we don't have deep commitments with the unrighteous. We don't have deep commitments with people full of darkness. And if you do, why are you drawn to that? Why are you drawn to darkness? What's in you attracted to what's in them? Why? Why are you drawn to that darkness? We don't have deep commitments with Belial or infidels or idols. These are things 2 Corinthians forbids us as Christians from having any kind of deep, meaningful connection with. So if we were friends with these, these would be shallow friendships, peripheral friendships that we might keep a hand on, that we might lead them to Christ. Don't let the perverts or the woke crowd or the progressives tell you, well, Jesus was friends with sinners. He had dinner with them on his terms, and he always preached the gospel he always confronted sin. He didn't go into the brothels or the drug dens. He didn't go into the clubs or the bars. He had dinner openly and religious people were present. And everybody could see it. The religious folks could see it. That's why they were upset about it. You're not doing something dark and secret when the religious folks can see you. It's an open festival. It's an open wedding. It's an open dinner. Everybody's walking by. They can see he's eating with publicans and sinners. Why? Because it's open to be seen. When you're fellowshipping with people and you keep it secret, you're dirty. So if you're going to have some kind of acquaintance-based friendship with the unbeliever, you do have to be careful and keep it at arm's distance. We need to somewhat be friends or friendly to the lost. That's how we win them to Christ. But you're friends with them on your terms, and your terms are always preaching the gospel. I have been friends with many, many, many homosexuals. Not so many lesbians. I haven't known too many lesbians. I've always been friends with them on my terms, and the gospel was always presented. I never condemned them. I never preached them. I never used slurs against them. I just said, you need Jesus. You don't have to be this way. I always gave them the gospel. You were raised better than this. What happened to you? Why are you this way? And before long, the gospel always broke our friendship. I didn't hang out with them in their apartments. I didn't go with them to their restaurants. I was friends with them on the job. I was friends with them in the classroom. I was friends with them in open places. Never converted any of them. Not that they can't be converted, but 
Never was able to convert any of them. We had one roommate who was a, a homosexual. He got born again, spirit-filled. He walked away from the lifestyle, but then fell back into it. Once he fell back into it and the cocaine started back up and he started stealing money, we kicked him out. Yes, Amen. <laughs> fellowship with the body. This is who we do fellowship with. It concerns me when Christians look for all their friendships outside the local church. It concerns me when Christians are just smart enough to attend church, but not smart enough to befriend people in the church. And they always use the lame excuse, we have nothing in common. Well, what are you looking for? Drugs? Sex? Perversion? Gossip? Slander? Porn? Violence? Hatred? What? What? what I don't know. What, what, you tell me we're born again. We're blood-bought. We're part of the same body. You're my brother. I'm your brother. Jesus is our big brother. God's our father. What more do you need in common? Learn my hobby. I'll learn your hobby. We'll broaden our horizons and have fun with something we never tried before. What more are we looking for? Well, they have a different accent. Well, they look different. They got a different color than me. Well, that's the kind of person you need to be around. They got a different perspective. Yeah, you have a narrow one. Get around them. I, just, I, I don't trust Christians who come to church but don't fellowship with the body. I don't trust Christians who make all their friendships in the world because it tells me there's still carnality in their heart drawn to the carnality in the world. I don't trust Christians. There's a carnality. There's a secret perversion in them. When they come to church, they learn the lingo, but they're always drawn back into the world, and all their strongest relationships and their strongest friendships are among the pagans or the lukewarm Christians. Pagans and lukewarm Christians make me nervous. I am not comfortable around them. Now, they don't intimidate me. Don't misunderstand me. They don't intimidate me. I'm not afraid of them, but I'm not comfortable around them because they're on the border. They're straddling a fence. They're flirting with the spirit of the world. I'm not comfortable running. I'd rather sit down at a table with a stark witch or a Muslim or a Hindu, someone who's bold in my face saying, I'm a Hindu. I don't believe in your Jesus. I'm a Muslim. I don't believe in your Jesus. I'm a witch. I pray against your Jesus. I would have a safer conversation with them over pizza than a lukewarm, mediocre, Sunday morning only saint because at least honesty would be spoken with clarity between the two of us. I would have more comfort, more ease sitting down with a Muslim. I've had lots of conversations with Muslims. I find them to be some of the most pleasant people on the planet. I don't like lukewarm Christians. Neither does Jesus. He said in the Revelation, you guys make me want to puke. That's what he said about his own kids who were fence straddlers. Not my words, the Lord's words. We fellowship with the body. We're not to be worldly in our associations. We fellowship with the body. It's where our strength comes from, the camaraderie of the saints, the fellowship of the saints. This is where we run. This is where we have our strongest friendships. My strongest friendships, once I rededicated my life to Christ at the age of 18, have always been in the church. I've had some come, I've had some go, but my strongest friendships have always been added to me by the Lord Jesus in the church. I have no strong friendships outside of the church. None. I have stronger relationships in the church than I do with my own family. I communicate more with foreigners overseas than I do my own brother in Florida. 
I have regular conversations, FaceTimes, phone calls with a myriad of people overseas. I talk to them more regularly than I do my own brother in Florida. Not that there's anything uh, ought between us. We're just, we're not close. He has his life. I have mine. I have a more kindred spirit with the African preaching in Kenya or Uganda or Zimbabwe or Nigeria than I do my brother in Florida doing his thing in his church. God has always brought me the stronger relationship through the body of Christ. How can two walk together except they be in agreement? It makes me wonder, the Christian that comes to church but all their friendships are in the world, they have nothing in agreement with us because they don't walk with us. You walk with those you're in agreement with. So why isn't that holy people? Why isn't that agreement with the righteous? Why isn't that agreement with the upright and the saint and the prayer warrior? I don't get it. You have to always judge yourself and ask, what in me is drawn to that? Why am I drawn to that? Why am I drawn to that darkness, that perversion, that compromise? Why am I drawn to that excuse? Why am I drawn? Why do I keep getting sucked back into that? Because it's in you. Don't be a peripheral in your fellowship. Don't be a Christian in church attendance only. Look at Acts chapter 2. We're talking about the basics of friendships and fellowships. Jesus has killed many friendships for me. But really all he did was say, come a little closer, son. And I did. And then he said, come a little closer. And I did. And before long, I looked up and the folks I was walking with thought I went too far. And they walked away. As long as we fellowship with Jesus together, we had sweet fellowship together. You have to understand that if you're going to walk with Jesus, the light in you is going to repel dark people. By dark, I don't mean skin color. People of darkness. How about that? Don't go get racial on me. I know Black Lives Matter wants to buy a couple more million-dollar mansions, but that doesn't mean we start burning cities to the ground so they can buy some more real estate. Hey, you remember when you gave some of God's money to BLM and they embezzled it and bought themselves million-dollar houses? That was awesome. Remember when they said they'd use it to help the inner city and they never did? $60 $60 million sitting in an account that people gave to it trying to help right racial justice. And all. What, did, what did BLM do? What did those black lesbian Marxists do? Embezzled it. You couldn't see that coming? I got some beachfront property in Baxter I want to give you. Acts chapter 2, verse 41 Then they that received the word were baptized, that gladly received his word, were baptized. And the same day, there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. I wonder how many of those the Lord had appeared to, but they just didn't show up. I bet they weren't even anywhere near that house that day. This just shows you the Lord appears to almost 500, over 500 after his resurrection, but only 120 show up for church. Can you imagine the testimony against you for all eternity when you were one of the few that the resurrected Savior showed up to after his resurrection, invited you to this Pentecostal church service, and you didn't show up? And if you didn't show up, I guarantee you weren't part of the crowd that day. Because that's the process. those are the Jews from all over the world. So where are you on that day? Probably drawn to darkness somewhere, some lukewarm, mediocre, fence-straddling Jew. 
So 3,000 were born again, verse 42. This is how Christians grow. And they, the new souls, the early church, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, so there's teaching, and in fellowship. The early church fellowshiped with each other. And not just fellowship, and in breaking of bread. That means they ate meals together. And in prayers. You see the formula for strong Christian friendships. Two spiritual activities, doctrine and prayer, and two social activities, fellowshipping and eating. Because not all fellowship has to be around eating, but a lot of it can be around eating. They didn't just have meals together. They shared other parts of their life together. These born-again baby Christians on fire for God, full of Pentecost and fire, this is what the Spirit of God compelled them to do. Now, there is something broken in a Christian soul when they can't just relax and fellowship with their brother or sister in Christ. There's a nervous tick in them, a nervous Nelly. Why, why can't you just sit down? Why can't you just come over and fellowship? Why can't you just watch a ball game together without being spiritual? They, they were two spiritual things, but they're not the same as fellowshipping and breaking of bread. There was continuing in the apostles' doctrine, and there was prayer, but there's also just fellowshipping, and then there's eating. There are some Christians, they're so weird, they're, they're, they're just consumed of winning the next soul. Just consume, just, just consume. There, there's too much work to do. There's too much work to do. There's too much work to do. Yeah, and you're going to kill yourself, and there'll still be more work to do. How about your fellowship? How about you build some camaraderie? How about you share your life with the body of Christ? When I went to Dr. Sumrall's Bible school uh, 18 years ago now, to me, he was like the 13th apostle of the Lamb, and maybe the fourth member of the Godhead, kind of. I knew better than that, but I still just really respected him and idolized him. And I knew he was a world-class missionary, been to over, preached in over 100 countries in the world. That's no small event. And had churches all over the world, wrote over 100 books. And so the dean of our school was a lady named Dr. Lucy Sheets. She's still alive, last I checked. She was very close to Dr. Sumrall, but she was significantly younger than him. And she said, I was over at Brother Sumrall's house one day talking ministry. He said, Lucy, sit down here and watch this John Wayne movie with me. And I thought, wait, can you do that? Is there permission to watch a John Wayne movie when you got the world to win for Jesus? Apparently she needed that lesson too, I suppose. Sit down here and just, just watch this movie with me. They said of Brother Hagen, you go to his office, he had a bunch of TVs and he had multiple games on, watching a lot of sporting events. <laughs> you can be so wound up, so tight, you actually break the gospel because you won't fellowship, which is still part of the gospel. If they're fellowshipping and breaking bread, it means they weren't winning the lost every second of the day. They still had lives to live. And it's totally okay for you to open up your home and share some bread and some fellowship. Amen. And charismatics get so weird on this. We want to pray and intercede and everything's got to be woo-woo spiritual. Why can't we just fellowship? We're going to need these relationships later if we don't already need them bad now. We're just talking about how to have friends. You should have a couple. 
There's also something really dangerous when your heart says this, because I hear this as your pastor. Some of you bring it to me thinking I'm going to agree with you. I agree you're an idiot. But folks will say, Pastor, you know everybody at our church is blank. You sure about that? Everybody? Pastor, you know, everybody at our church, they're just out of it. They're just, everybody here, Pastor, you know, everybody, everybody. Is this why you don't fellowship with us? Because you think you're better than us? Well, you know everybody there. Well, Pastor, everybody. Well, seriously, shall we go down the list? This might explain why you don't fellowship with us, because you in your heart think you're better than everybody else that's serving God. You have become the fool of Proverbs who's more wise in your own eyes than seven men that can render a reason. And if you'd ask me what I really thought of you or if I could have your permission to judge you as a pastor, I might tell you you're weird and that you could chill out a whole lot. Just dial it back. Just, just walk it back. Just, just breathe some good air in, some bad air out. You know, If we had a chill pill, we'd market you extra strength. Take nine of these and call me in the morning and just relax and be relaxed. Just chill out. God's a lot bigger than you controlling everything. And that may be why you don't have any friends, because you think it's all about you and God. And the gospel is a lot bigger than you and God. (laughs) He has a lot. Remember, when you think you're Elijah and you're the only one, the Lord's going to say, you're a fool. I have 7,000 I've not even introduced you to because I don't want you to ruin them. There's a pride that creeps in when we think we're the only one. They continued in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. Two spiritual practices that were the root of having good Christian fellowship and two social practices that were the root of having good friendship. That's how we do it. Fellowship with God, fellowship with the body. Now, I remind you, I wrote about it in a book. You probably didn't read it, that they have, you have two bodies of Christ. You have the, the body of Christ that's incarnate, that is when we come together in the discarnate body and you can't be a member of the body of Christ without fellowshipping with the body of Christ. You can't be a member of the body of Christ without fellowshipping with the body of Christ. And some Christians, not here tonight, but some Christians, they're just barely still connected and they have vascular issues. Because even though they're kind of attached, they're not catching the flow. And they're not really contributing. They're not receiving of us. We're not receiving of them. And these, these basically are kind of like limp appendages on the local body. And every church has them. It's that dead leg that gets drawn. It's that ear that won't perk up to hear. You have to make sure that you stay connected. How can you fellowship with Jesus and reject his body? Amen. It's a theological question, a little advanced for tonight, but I just want you to understand it. Christians share their lives. Christians open their hearts. They don't mind to share their business. We don't get into one ditch and don't share it with anybody. That's a ditch. And we don't get in the other ditch and share it with everybody. That's social media. That's an immature white woman. Just we balance out. I know it took a swipe at BLM. We've got to swat at Karen a little bit took a swing on the Marxist lesbian that embezzled everybody's money, claiming to change racial justice, even though crimes against black folks have gone through the roof in the last two years, you know. So we got to swipe at Karen. So one ditch doesn't share anything. The other ditch shares everything. Both of them are sin. Christians don't mind to share their business. It's how you get prayer. 
It's how you share your life. It keeps you humble. You can't knock somebody over who's on their knees. You can't humiliate people who are humble. Humiliation is forced humility. And when you're already humble and self-deprecating, nobody can humble you. You're already there. So prideful people just keep everything all proper, like all Southern, you know, (laughs) Southern mess. Beware the attitude, the carnal attitude that says, everybody at that church is all up in my business. That is such an ignorant attitude. Everybody at that church is all up in my business. Number one, that's an exaggeration because most people don't care about your business. Number two, you're not that important. We got other things to worry about. I got my own business. Number three, it may be they're all up in your business because you got a proven track record of destroying your business. And I would think you would want help from successful Christians of which you are not numbered. So invite people to get up in your business. And number four, clean people have nothing to hide anyway. Clean people got nothing to hide. So I've pastored long enough to hear that lame attitude. They're all up in my business. What are you hiding? Because when you're clean, toss me your cell phone. We'll look through it. Got nothing to hide. When you're clean, tell me how you talked to your wife or your husband yesterday. When you're clean, tell me how you treated your kids. When you're clean, you got nothing to hide. When you're clean, get in my business. Amen. 1 Corinthians 12. A couple more verses here. We'll wrap this up in about 15 minutes. So you watch checkers. When's it going to be over? When I'm done. (laughs) It is. Thank you. It is good preaching. Some of you, we're still trying to get married. You got to be able to be a friend before you can have a spouse. You'd be paying attention, taking really good notes. Just because you name and claim somebody doesn't mean it's the will of God. We call that blabbing and grabbing. (laughs) Squealing and stealing. You just take your pick. We'll rhyme all day long. It doesn't mean it's the will of God. God loves that other person more. And he doesn't want to, to condemn them the rest of their life married to you. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that we're one body. So this is why we fellowship with each other. We're one body. 1 Corinthians 12, 18 tells us he sets us in the body where it pleases him. So if I'm called to a church, and I've proven this in my Christian walk, anywhere God called me, that was my church family. And I opened my life to those folks and I got to know them. And they were folks I would not have chosen to fellowship with because they were not what I was. Whether it was this church in college, Pastor Darren's church, Pastor Trey's church, Pastor McCamey's church, Pastor Tim's church in Indy, those people were not who I was, but that's where I was called. So you open your heart and you fellowship and you have meals with them and you learn things about life you wouldn't have learned if you'd stayed a narrow-minded, little cultured or uncultured Christian coming from your favorite culture, which is only your favorite culture because that's all mama ever gave you. So God puts you places because he knows what he's doing, and you open your heart to those folks. And after a while, you get good at it. You get used to it, and you're like, Lord, put me someplace else. I want to meet more of your kids. 
Some folks are just so resistant to the body of Christ, it doesn't matter where God puts them, they're going to hang out with the same three weirdos playing Call of Duty. Having never met them, just chat with them on the headset. What's up, Rocky Tango 5? You don't even know the guy's real name. You're never getting married. Because I'll never do a wedding for you. Go down and get the Elvis impersonator. Amen. The Bible tells us that when we fellowship together, we beautify each other. It says that the, the eye can't say, I don't need the hand. And the hand can't say, I don't need the leg. And the leg can't say, I don't need the ear. We need each other. So we fellowship. You become friends with people you wouldn't have normally chosen to be friends with. It's the beauty of the body of Christ. There are Christians that can't stand the body of Christ so much, they're going to be so disappointed in heaven when they have to spend eternity with the body of Christ. They're going to wonder where all their earthly friends are. They're all in hell. <laughs> and I'm wondering how they made heaven when they were more comfortable around people in hell. When you fellowship with one another, there's a strength. Look at verse... Um, Look at verse 25. Let's put, this, let's put this up on the NIV if we can. 1 Corinthians 12, 25 says, in King James it says that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one of another. And in, uh, let's see here, 12, 25. I'll read to you the New Living Translation. She'll get it up. So that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. In this local church, we should all have equal concern one for another. That does away with the, the uh, favoritism that I like Ben better, so I'm going to give him more attention, and I don't care what happens to Nick. Or I like Mother Murdoch the best. I don't care what happens to Miss Amy. No, no, we have equal care for each other. Uh, New Living Translation says that this makes for harmony among the members so that all the members each care for each other. They care for each other. That's part of being the body of Christ and having friends. When you care for each other, your heart opens up to them. There's a lady I'm visiting in the hospital now. I've been going to see her for about six weeks. Didn't know her till six weeks ago. She's only been able to talk for about the last two or three weeks, but she's becoming a friend of mine because I go and visit her. I'm only going to go. I'm only visiting her because my cousin called me and said, can you go visit this lady? They thought she might die. She's actually gotten very well and healthy. And I've gotten to know her personality. And I, I like her personality. She's spunky. And I'm trying to win her to the Lord. But I didn't know her six weeks ago. I tease her. She's from Boston. And she has a trach. She couldn't talk. And I said, well, once you can talk, you're going to talk like a hick like the rest of us. You've been down here so long. She said, no. She now, no, no, no. And uh, they put her little thing in her pass. It's called a passy thing, pass a trach. So now she can talk, and yep, she sounds like an obnoxious Yankee. <laughs> I said, it's worse than I imagined. You just sound horrible. She said, I don't have an accent. These nurses have an accent. That's fair enough. I didn't know her six weeks ago, but she's become a friend because I opened my heart to her, and I've inconvenienced myself. Worse yet, she's a Boston Bruins fan. That's half demon right there. <laughs> But I can have compassion. We still pray for Mark because he's a Bruins fan too. Who do you open your heart to? Is it just you? When all you have is you, you burn through friends. You can tell the signs of a, a selfish person. They have multiple friends, multiple boyfriends, multiple girlfriends. That's a selfish person. 
Verse 26 says, and whether one member suffer, all the members suffer. When we share this fellowship and this friendship with the body of Christ, when one suffer, we feel it together. But it says, and if one be honored, all the members rejoice together. So we rise together, we fall together. We hurt together, we rejoice together. I, I don't understand churches that can go through highs and lows and congregation members just don't understand it. Well, I know why you don't understand it. You don't fellowship. You're here in body, but not in heart. That's a selfish person. That's an immature person. If God has called you to a local body, you open your heart. You share your life with those that God assigned you to because he knew before ever he called you somewhere that this is going to be your family one day and he's going to want you to share your life that your kids may be raised together in the children's department. Your kids might even get married one day. That's happened in our church before. It'll happen again. We open our lives. There's no room for jealousy in friendships. There's no room for comparison. 2 Corinthians, if you want to jump over there, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says that when we compare ourselves among ourselves, we're unwise. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 12 says, For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. When you're a true friend, you don't compare yourself to them. When they get promoted, you're excited because that's your friend. You don't get jealous of your real friends because when they're promoted, you're excited for them. And if you know God, you know if God will promote them, then God will promote you. You're not trying to keep up with your friend. You're trying to cheer your friend ahead. There's no competition among friends unless it's friendly competition, whether you're playing a game together or running a race or something. There's a friendly competition, but not this selfish, jealous, strife-filled, envious, wicked jealousy. Not that kind of competition. That's what real friendship looks like. When my wife succeeds, I cheer for her. When I succeed, she cheers for me. We teach that to our children, that they don't get jealous of one another, but they cheer and pull for one another. It says in verse 13, but we will not boast of this, of things without our measure. I won't boast beyond what God's given me, but according to the measure of the rule, which God has distributed to us, a measure which reaches even unto you. Paul's applying it to his ministry. We can apply it to our lot in life. When Dr. Cephas got his PhD, we cheered for him. I wasn't jealous that he got his PhD. It's not my lot in life. Why would I be jealous of something that's not my race? When Pastor Brett and Miss Bobby got to move to Uganda, I was not jealous. That's their lot, not my lot. That's their race, not my race. I cheered for him. You got to figure out who you are in Christ. That's why we can say jealousy and insecurity is the fruit of immaturity. Because you don't know who you are yet. So you're jealous of everything. When you know who you are in Christ, when you know what God's called you to do, the church across the street can get 10,000 people and the pastor across the other street with 50 members is not jealous because that's not his race. When you're called to be an engineer, you're not jealous of the surgeon because you're not called to be a surgeon. You cheer for the surgeon getting surgeon of the year because you know who you are. Immature people stay that way because they don't learn who they are in Christ and they'll always burp up jealousy and dysfunction and neediness, looking for affirmation. They'll scrap at affirmation. I had a professor in college. He jokingly said, uh, I said, you have a son? And actually he had a son named Chris as well. 
He said, yeah, my son's name is Chris. He's out west right now trying to find himself. And I thought, I guess he's lost. But I heard another man say, you don't ever have to go find yourself. Just find Jesus. So there's this rebellious attitude when young people say, I just got to go find myself. Oh, you're lost. If you got to go find yourself, you're lost. But if you find Jesus, you got nothing to find. You found Jesus. And he'll tell you who you are. So let me wrap up with this. Let me talk about the exclusive friendship. Have you heard that before? And there's a balance to that. Like, my wife and I were exclusive. That's called marriage. There are certain aspects of my marriage we don't share with nobody, though it's very popular today. That's the other thing the woke agenda is pushing is open relationships and thruples. Thruple is the new term. Have you heard that term? A thruple is three people in a relationship. So then you have polygamy, which is kind of married thruples. Open relationships is when you just play the field, and then you have open marriages and swingers. All of this is just mocking God. Huh. We went from boys and girls dating five people at once to thruples. That's why we're not much on dating around here. So the exclusive friendship, we're not talking about marriage. We're talking about when your friendship doesn't allow room for any other friends. That's unhealthy. It's not biblical. It's perverse. It is indicative of neediness. It's indicative of insecurity. It's indicative of control issues. Now, anybody who's been alive 25, 30 years has seen their friends get sucked into these. Happy-go-lucky gal starts dating a guy, and he wants exclusivity, and he locks down the relationship, and she can't be friends with anybody. He becomes controlling. I've seen girls do it too. Happy-go-lucky guy, got a bunch of friends, but he wants to make her so happy and she's just so weird and needy. He doesn't have any permission. He doesn't get a yard pass. He doesn't get a, uh, a, a leash. She keeps him real tight on that leash. He, he doesn't get to be friends with anybody because she's weird and insecure and needy and easily provoked to jealousy. Same with the guy that's controlling. So the exclusive friendship. This is really a loner who's found somebody to cling to. And they can't handle real friendships, but they can't handle being alone either. So they produce this hybrid of perversion. Now, my wife and I are exclusive, but I share her friendship with other people. She shares my friendship with other people. I'm allowed to have guy friends. She's allowed to have girlfriends and not in the modern sense because we're not woke. We're holy. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Healthy friendships are shared. You share your friends. If you really care for them, you share them. If you think they're that wonderful, you want everybody else to know them. You think they're that awesome. You're like, come meet my friend Bob. Man, Bob is funny. He makes me laugh. He'll make you laugh. Bob, hey, can you come hang out with us? You got to meet my friend Jack. Jack could use some of your humor, Bob. And you might could use some of his accounting. <laughs> you don't smother friends. You don't control them. You don't restrict their friendships. Not even in marriage. That's weird. You can tell when someone is too immature to date when all their friendships show a track record of being exclusive and withdrawn. 
You can tell when someone is too immature to date or court when their friendships show a track record of always being exclusive and withdrawn. That means that whenever he starts dating, all of his guy friends don't get to hang out with him anymore. When she starts dating, all of her other friendships get neglected. That is indicative of immaturity. Because to be mature, you got to share your friends. We're not talking like stingy toys in the toddler room, but that's how some teenagers are. That's how some 20-year-olds are. That's how some 60-year-olds are. Easily jealous. <laughs> you have some folks in marriages, they're so jealous, they're so insecure, they can't even let their husband go off to work without calling and checking on him every five minutes. That's weird. That's messed up. I've had to help folks in those kind of relationships. She can't go off to work without him texting her every five minutes to make sure she hasn't talked to anybody. She works at a restaurant. She talks to a lot of people and guys. It's her job. Those are some messed up people. They don't have permission. They don't have, the, they don't have any business being in a committed relationship because they're going to ruin a perfectly good human being. They need to be alone. I'm not calling divorce because we're not talking about anybody here in a marriage, maybe some singles. They need to be alone with the Lord to grow and to develop and to mature and to be able to have healthy friendships and healthy fellowship. And you don't want to fall for someone who's clingy or controlly or suffocating or weird. Amen. These kind of relationships are indicative of several, what I'm just going to call soul breakdowns. Number one, it's indicative of insecurity. When you're insecure, you don't need to be in any kind of relationship that's intimate. By that, I just mean romantic. You need friendships, but you learn to find security in friendships. You learn security, number one, in your relationship with God, but then other friendships that are just friends. And they say, hey, you're an awesome person. I like you. You're funny. And maybe mom and dad never told you that, but you get a friend that starts to believe in you, builds your security. People with these kind of relationships, these track records, they show that they have a propensity for jealousy. Jealousy is going to kill any relationship. I have seen parents become jealous of their children's success. That's a special kind of weird. Your job is to cheer for your kids and say, go further than me. I pray my kids go further than me. I pray my kids have a better marriage than mine. That's what I owe them. But to be jealous of your kids, that's weird. That's a testimony to what you did right. You should be proud of it. So folks that are controlling, they're jealous. Number three, it shows a, this, the thing the psychologists call dysfunctional codependence. They think their success is dependent upon another human being and not a God named Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Dysfunctional codependence. They cannot function without somebody else being attached at the hip. And remember, the indication of this kind of personality is that when they become close to somebody, they eliminate all the other friends. And they start to use weird ultimatums, like if we're going to be friends, you can't be friends with them. Anybody heard that? Yeah, there's a bunch of weirdos out there, isn't there? Hopefully none of you are that weird. I teach better than that. I don't know if you listen that good. If you and I are going to be friends, you can't be friends with Sally or Susie or Billy or Bobby or Chuck or Ted. No, no, no. We're, if you're going to be friends with me, it's me and only me. 
Don't be friends with that person. It's going to ruin your life. And the fourth thing you see is they smother their partner. And they always keep them away from their other friends that were established first. It's selfish. It's selfish. Life is richer when we have lots of friendships. Life is richer when we fellowship. Our life is better. Run away from people that are controlling and insecure like that. I've told you this story many times. Years ago, we were out at Hurricane Boat Dock, me and a buddy of mine from this church. He was a little overweight, but not bad. He was a cigarette smoker, but he was trying to quit. And we went swimming, and I used to swim a lot. I was a very proficient swimmer. I swam a lot of laps at Tech. So I'm just going to swim out to the, the buoys, the floating boundary at Hurricane, that you can sit on it. So I swim out there. Don't think anything of it. doesn't even dawn on me that he maybe can't swim or can't swim well. I get all the way out there to the, the floating tube, and I look back. He's not even halfway there, and he's flailing and crying out and gasping. And I've never seen anybody nearly drown. So I thought, well, great. So I jump back in the water, really just slip off, and I go to him. And I, I've watched it in the movies. I've never lifeguarded, so I'm not professionally trained or anything. I never even watched Baywatch, so I don't even know how the Hoff did it. But I kind of, like, I know kind of how to do this. I'm going to grab him somehow or another. But as soon as I get within arm's distance of him, he grabs a hold of me with both arms because he's panicking. His name was Mickey. Some of you remember Mickey Stevens. I said, Mickey, if you don't let go of me, I'm going to break your face. And I admit it because I'm not going to die for you. Jesus did. I'm not going to. <laughs> And I said, if you'll just let go of me, I can get you. Just let go. And so he, thankfully, he put his arms up, and I popped him around, and I began to tread water. He was kind of a chubby guy, which it didn't float. I thought it would float. It did not float. <laughs> Come to think of it, I was, like, I was really struggling that day doing a side stroke. He was, he was dense, heavily insulated, but very dense. And so, but there had been these guys over here on these two inner tubes. They had seen the whole thing. And I said, give me one of your tubes. He, he, my buddy is, is going to drown. I need your tube. And so they tossed me one of the tubes and I pulled him up on it. And he went to shore. And then I went back out to the buoys to just sit. But it has taught me so much, especially even now as pastoring, that if people won't submit to your help, they'll kill you. And anybody that wants to grab onto you in a friendship like that because they're needy, you can't help them. You need to get away. Because the only wor thing worse than one person drowning emotionally is two people. And we are living in that day of toxic emotions where people just want to share their misery and they will bring you down. And if you're not strong enough to help them, you don't need to be anywhere near them. And most of the time, helping them says, shut up, listen to what I have to say, turn around now, help you. But if you're going to continue to spew and splash, I'm backing away from you. We get into this weird Southern or cultural emotion where we feel obligated to help people who really were not equipped to help. And we've got to be able to be wise to that. All right. So let's wrap this up real quick. A couple points just to summarize what we talked about. The reality check of how to have friends. Number one, you don't have to write this down. Just listen. Having friends, have friends by opening up. We would, we would misquote Proverbs, but it's sound doctrine. If you're going to have friends, you've got to be friendly. If you're going to have friends, you've got to go hang out somewhere. You've got to open up your life. Make some time, hangout time. Get to know somebody. Number two, to be friendly, to have friends, you've got to care for people more than yourself. 
Friendship takes selflessness. You have to show people you really care about them. Ask them questions. It isn't always about you. The best way to make friends is say, where are you from? What do you do? What do you like? What do your parents do? What are your hobbies? If you ask people questions, they'll always open up to you because it makes them feel important. If all you ever do is talk about you, you won't have many friends. Number three, fellowship with believers. Fellowship with the believers. And quit thinking everybody around you is some horrific thing. Some of you have come to me and said that. You know, Pastor, everybody at this church, what? Everybody at this church, what? What are they? Because I can tell you praises on every one of them. Or is this just your smokescreen so you don't have to open up your heart and life and fellowship with the rest of us? We're not perfect. But man, we show up, we serve, we worship, we repent, we help, we pull together. What else do you want? We're not your dad. Quit blaming us. We're not your weird mom. Quit blaming us. We're not that third husband. Or that fourth wife, quit blaming us. I'm sorry you're weird. You've been here long enough to get fixed. Amen. But don't ever start pointing your finger at your brothers and sisters in Christ. Fellowship with the believers. Number four, when uh, we rejoice together, we don't get jealous. We rejoice. We hurt together. Then we rejoice together. And number five, we need to judge ourselves to make sure we're not in suffocating, needy relationships. When you bring somebody to church as a friend, you don't keep them to yourself. That's weird. If I, if I bring Ben to church, my job is to introduce him to everybody I possibly can. Hey, come meet my friend Ben. Ben, you, this is Steve-O. You guys have a lot in common. You ought to hang out. Maybe we can go get coffee. And you kind of pass them off so they can expand their horizons. But why bring somebody to church if they're just yours personally? It's my friend. It's my friend. De definitely. Definitely my friend. It's my friend. It's my friend. <laughs> Is that your friend or your blanket? You left the blanket at home, but you brought a friend. I have a comforter, too. He's called the Holy Spirit. I can take him everywhere. I don't have to wash him. I don't have to trade him up every three or four weeks. Like people do with relationships. You know those weird ones? Let me help single people. When you meet somebody and you want to feel them out, say, how many boyfriends have you had? <laughs> kind of like when you go for a job interview, you want to see how many jobs have you had in the last five years, because if it's 25, I'm not hiring you, because you're weird. How many boyfriends have you had? How many girlfriends have you had? Because if, if you're burning through them like a cookvillian does a job, Taco Bell ain't the problem. And neither was boyfriend number seven. That doesn't mean you don't get fixed along the way and say, listen, that was a weird stage in my life. But I'd like to see the resume. How many boyfriends did you have in the last year? How many girlfriends did you have in the last two years? Because that'll tell a lot on a person. How many churches you've been to? There is this fruit called faithfulness. And it brings stability to our friendships. There is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Some of my best friends I have now had 10 and 15, 20 years. I've been friends with Willie B since August of 94. He's my oldest friend. 
Actually, my friend Marlon Peterson from high school I've been friends with since August of 92. He does work for me right now for the book. He's an amazing artist. So then there's Willie B., friends since 94. And then there's Brett Scudder and Bobby Scudder and some of you that we came to college together. We're still friends almost 30 years later. Those long-term friends. My newest friends are ministry friends. They've been, I've been friends with them, you know, 10 years, 15 years. Yeah, there's something about stability. If you want friends, you got to be stable. If you're not stable, find a friend who'll cut you some mercy, who'll teach you stability. Because <laughs> sometimes stability has to be taught. And watch what it does for your life.